0: Postscript Media, podcast for a
1: changing planet.
2: Hey, Mike, how how much
1: canned fish do you eat? None. Canned fish is gross. All right, then oysters. How many oysters do you eat? Tamar, you know I don't like oysters, and you just wanted me to say it out loud to an oyster farmer... For the millions and billions of listeners on our podcast. I get it.
2: Okay, yeah, I did actually know that. But I have to say we've been getting inundated with listener questions. And we got one on canned fish and one on oysters. And since you were just outed by the New York Times' as John McWhorter as being a paragon of open-mindedness, I thought this would be the perfect time to talk about those things because we might just be able to get you to flip. Oh, very funny, pal.
1: Okay, for those of you who missed the Times piece that made me famous, the uh, the linguist John McWhorter wrote an impassioned defense of people who use mealy mouth verbal tics like, you know, or kinda, or sorta, and his poster child was, you know, me. He quoted me, you knowing my way through an appearance on NPR, to argue that I was actually just demonstrating my openness to other viewpoints, that all my inarticulate, kinda, sorta was in fact a modern expression of generosity and humility. So let's just say my friends are now using the verb to McWhorter to mean to elevate an annoying tick into a virtue. And tomorrow, let's also say that you can take your disgusting canned fish <laughs> and,
2: uh, you know... All right, you are, you're proving John McWhorter wrong here. But I have to say, I've been working with you for, what, about three months now? And one of the things that made it great is because... You kind of are a little bit open-minded, sort of. And that's good because we're getting all kinds of listener questions that have us delving into all kinds of different issues. They've been leaving tons of voicemails, and and the questions have been great. And we can't devote an entire show to every one of them, but we want to tackle a whole bunch in just one show. And it's not just about canned fish and oysters, but also soy and cooktops and everybody's favorite eating insects. So uh, so let's get to it and hope that nobody is counting the sortas and kindas. It's the mailbag episode. I'm Tamar Haspel.
1: And I'm Michael Grunwald. And this is Climavores, a show about, you know, eating on a changing planet.
0: Hi, Tamar and Mike. I want to know your take on bugs. There's a lot of, I don't know, activity in the bug space, bug protein space a few years ago, and I haven't seen edible bugs outside of museum gift shops. Um, but, yeah, our, our bug is bug protein a thing? And what's your take on it? Is it a climate solution? Is it going to be adopted by people in Western countries? Bugs are pretty gross, but I don't know. I can see the value in it. Anyways, thanks.
1: That's a great question. There is some cricket powder in gyms, and you can get some on Amazon. And when I was in Mexico, I did eat some grasshoppers that I bought from a street vendor, and, yeah, they they were kind of gross. Look, uh, eating insects would be a terrific way to to get a lot of protein in a pretty efficient manner uh, because insects do grow fast and they don't require a lot of feeding to to increase their body weight. Um, But I do think a lot of people think they're gross. I think they're more likely to end up as animal feed and particularly fish feed for aquaculture. In fact, um, Archul Daniels Midland is right now, they're they're building the largest in- insect protein factory in the world um, in Decatur, Illinois, near its corn processing plant. And they're going to feed the bugs, you know, essentially leftovers from the corn processing process. So... Look, I think, uh, I think it can be exciting. Right now, it's a very tiny part of a global protein intake. I think they're saying it could be a $300 million industry in the United States by 2030, which is really pretty tiny in a trillion dollar global meat market. But hey, as feed, particularly for fish... I think it has some promise.
2: I think that's absolutely right, especially the fish part, because one of the difficult parts of aquaculture is trying to get fish to grow without feeding them small fish. And that kind of defeats the purpose of taking your fish production out of the ocean. So I see uh, a real upside there. You know, there are people who have done these life cycle analyses of insects, but there aren't that many of them. And the last one I saw showed mealworms coming in uh, just around where chicken was, except that's per kilogram of animal. And because you can eat or the animal can eat the whole mealworm, it is significantly better. And it's going to depend on whether those mealworms are fed waste streams or feed that could be diverted to other kinds of animals. So, you know, I think it's a good bet that insect protein is going to be um, a decent way to produce protein. Now, uh, for humans I'm gonna say in the united states it is a non-starter Americans will not eat insects and this is completely cultural our our hesitation is a learned disgust response that people in other parts of the world don't have but the thing about it is that just because it's a learned disgust response doesn't mean you can just get over it it's like it's deeply ingrained and the And I know that the reason I don't want to eat insects has nothing to do with the insects and it has everything to do with this enculturated idea, but that doesn't make the idea any less powerful. I still don't want to eat insects, but I do have great hope for misfeed. I think there could be other places in the world where they're a little more enlightened and they don't have this disgust response uh, to insects. And if we really want Americans to eat insects, the way to do it is to make sure our kids don't learn that disgust response. So all you climate watchers out there who are paying attention to your diet, feed the mealworms to your kids so they don't have that disgust response.
1: So bugs, super efficient, but super gross. So uh, we don't expect to be eating a lot of them anytime soon. Let's do the next one.
0: Hey, my name is Jacob Wagner. I'm a recent college student grad from Cornerstone University in uh, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, I'm in marketing and economics. So my question is maybe what are some tips or some things to research for college students who want to make a positive impact in the way that they eat food in small ways?
2: Well, hello, Jacob, and thanks for calling. And if your college days were anything like my college days, uh, I wasn't thinking about climate, but I sure was thinking about trying to eat on the cheap. And so were most of the kids I went to college with. And there's actually really good news here. And that is that the foods that are the most climate-friendly also happen to be the cheapest. And we are talking staple crops here, and this is my staple crop soapbox that I'm going to pull out. So the crops that have basically fed the world since the inception of humanity are these crops that can be grown efficiently, and you know, in in our century, they can be harvested by machine. They're storable. So we're talking about grains and legumes. In some cultures, there are tree fruits like breadfruit and uh, and jackfruit, potatoes, sweet potatoes, and cup of noodles. and when. right i was just gonna get there (laughs) because that's actually a really good point because all all of these um these stable crops are really cheap but that means you can turn them into cup of noodles and and cup of noodles are just fine for the environment but they're not so great for you so the key to climate-friendly eating on the cheap is focusing on row crops, grains, legumes, tubers, potatoes. But then you have to not veer off into the cup of noodles territory because then you're starting to talk about human health rather than planetary health. And presumably even though you're asking about climate health, I know that you must also care about your own health.
1: It's a great response and 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 one thing I would like to say to Jacob, like it's it's awesome to worry about your climate footprint and you you know with food and just generally. And you also have to keep it in perspective, right? That there are 8 billion of us and, you know, we should try to do our part. We don't necessarily have to anguish over every, you know, iota of carbon. We should just try to be better. And one thing I always say to people who are trying to eat greener is that the two big ways to do it are to eat less beef, and to waste less food.
2: So good luck out there, Jacob. All right, let's go on to the next one.
1: Hi.
3: Um, So I just listened to Climavores, and I, I did not hear anything about reducing the carbon footprint of cattle by feeding them seaweed. So I wanted to hear about that and how much seaweed you have to feed and how much it actually reduces the carbon footprint. The second suggestion I have is to do an episode on cooking methods. So I understand that convection cooktops um, use much less energy. What would your average bill go down, or how much would your average bill go down for energy versus how much it would cost to install? So um, I'd love to hear about that. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.
1: Those are both awesome questions. Uh, Let me take the seaweed first because I actually went out to Cal Davis where they're doing some studies and they are feeding seaweed to, they fed them to dairy cows. When I went, they were feeding them to steers um, and the specific answer is really it's a tiny amount of seaweed that they they mix into their feed. And these, these 800-pound steers were eating a lot of feed with very little seaweed. But the results were amazing. When I was out there, they were finding 80% less methane emissions from these particular steers that did have a little bit of seaweed in the diet. The caller is right. Getting the seaweed is going to be somewhat of a challenge. It's a very specific type of seaweed that's Uh, currently found in Australia. First, they have to make sure that it's safe, um, which there's still a little bit of work to do. There's a chemical additive called 3NOP that is now actually approved for use in some countries, and that one's looking pretty good. Only gets 30% less emissions. Um, Seaweed is not yet approved. But the big challenge is going to be, I think, to, to grow it. Um, in fact, uh, one company, it's called Symbrosia, just raised $7 million. That's a terrible name. <laughs> yeah. Oh, come on. That, I kind of like it. It's, it's like Synergy and Ambrosia. <laughs> they, but they got $7 million to grow seaweed in Hawaii. And in fact, uh, Danone was one of their big investors. And I think that's really exciting. Seaweed is not as easy to grow as like a crop, right? Because it has to be grown in the sea. But I do think there are, there is a lot of potential for for feed additives to reduce these methane emissions, which are a big problem. And as we mentioned in our last episode, uh, the the Inflation Reduction Act that President Biden just signed does in fact have a, a little mention of promoting these feed additives. So hopefully, seaweed will will be available soon.
2: I am massively enthusiastic about all of these efforts to try and get feed additives that reduce methane. And the results that you're talking about um, that reduce methane 80% are astonishing. And, you know, if this really pans out, all right, we'll move heaven and earth to get this seaweed out. I'll grow it myself. (laughs) (laughs) You grow everything else tomorrow. I know. This is, this is, it, it It's such a promising thing. And of course, all kinds of things go wrong between the experimental phases and the commercial phases. And, you know, I would be extremely surprised if we were able to reduce methane across the board in all cattle 80%. But I would also be surprised if we couldn't reduce it at all. And so I'm delighted to see people working on all of this stuff. Let's do the cooktops. Right. I have an in-
1: induction cooktop, and it uses... Basically, no electricity because, or certainly no carbon footprint because I have solar panels on my house. If I had that same induction cooktop in Wyoming where the grid is mostly coal-powered, it would have a much larger carbon footprint. That said, it would still have a pretty small carbon footprint because cooking has a pretty small carbon footprint. What's really exciting about these induction stoves is this idea that they're kind of a gateway to get people to go fossil-free. A lot of people, they have a gas line into their house and they need it because they have a gas stove. If it wasn't for the stove, then you start asking questions like, oh, do we really need a gas dryer? Uh, do we really need a gas furnace? That's why you're seeing in California, in Massachusetts, they're talking about in, in many cities, they're making it required to basically go all electric from the start. Um, so you're going to have induction cooktops. Again, I don't think it's going to make a huge difference. Maybe Tamar's done the math. Uh, but the the main thing is that it's a really excellent gateway to going fossil-free.
2: Yes, I have done the math. And they back up the other point that that you made, which is that this is a really small part of your carbon footprint. But let's get to the specifics. The caller asked about, I, I think they said convection, but they meant induction cooktops. And induction versus standard-issue electric with the coil, induction is better. It's more efficient, and I've seen numbers varying, um, but in the 20% range, and it depends on what you're replacing, of course. If you have, like, the ancient stove with the warped burner that doesn't come in contact with the pot, then you're going to get a big savings from induction. Um, and so, yeah, it definitely is better. Now, natural gas is, uh, as we said, it's it's carbon footprint-wise, it's actually a little better than the electric stoves, but it has other issues. And there was recently a study that came out that measured um, the, the uh, particulates and the methane leak. And it can actually pose a threat in some circumstances. And so there are other issues connected with uh, a gas stove and full disclosure I have a gas stove. But just to put this in perspective on how it affects your overall carbon footprint, I kind of I did do the math on it. Doing the math is like my hobby. If you look at the amount of greenhouse gases from your stove and you compare it to driving your car, your yearly stove use is going to be about the equivalent of driving 42 miles in an average car. So It's a very, very small part of your footprint and you shouldn't worry about it from a climate point of view.
1: Yeah, I would just say an induction stoves are great. They don't make a, you know, nasty pollution inside your kitchen, which people really are concerned about. And even if it's true that right now, if you look at the national grid, the uh, gas stoves are slightly, slightly better. As the grid gets greener, which is happening every day, uh, that's not going to be true for very long.
2: And I want to put in a good word for microwaving, because that is actually the least energy intensive way to to cook something. And so and I didn't have a microwave until I think I was like 40. And now, of course, I can't live without it. So that's uh, seaweed additives. That's induction cooktops. Uh, let's go on to the next one.
3: Hi, this is Mary. I listened to the first couple episodes; they're pretty fun. Mike, you waxed pretty rhapsodic about this salmon farm, and I'd kind of like to hear more about it. It really sounds kind of too good to be true. If anything you said, it's sort of starry-eyed. But um, I like salmon, so that's that's pretty interesting to me. Salmon's pretty important for, say, Central Oregon for bringing those nutrients in from the ocean into the high desert. So I don't think the farms are going to participate in that at all. But I'm, I'm curious about that. And I'm also curious about canned fish. Seems like a good way to cut down on food waste with fish. And there's one other thing. <laughs> Mike. You were kind of glib about nobody put a gun to your head and forced you to buy a Ford Ranger. But in a lot of places in the U.S., it's pretty hard to get around without a car. And I noticed you bought an e-car, not an e-bike. Just think about that. Anyway, um really looking forward to more episodes. And I'm just kind of teasing you there.
1: Bye-bye. All right, Marion. I guess if you're gonna tease me, I'll 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 respond to that first. And it is true I do have an electric car and no electric bike, but I drive my electric car when I need a car and when I can Go locally, like I did this morning to take my son to school, and actually for lunch, where I went to meet a friend downtown, I take my non-electric bike. I use my uh, my own energy, which is uh, presumably even... Even a little bit less on the uh, on the carbon footprint, um, but again, the point of all of these these things, and I know you're kidding, but uh, the idea is not to be perfect because none of us are. Um, I have my solar panels, I have my electric car, I brag about them all the time. I still, you know, eat too much meat and and take too many flights. Um, none of us are perfect. The idea is to just try to be better. Uh, you know, you do the best you can under the circumstances, and if the circumstances make it hard, then that's okay. All right, let me take the, the salmon question too, because it is true, I got very excited about Atlantic Sapphire. They're building the world's largest fish farm right near me, about an hour south of Miami in in Homestead, and you can get their Blue House Salmon now at Publix. Um, it's pretty good. And uh, they're doing great. That said, as excited as I am about the way they're doing this with, I think, a really small carbon footprint because it is so incredibly efficient the way they're, they're growing these salmon. And it is really good for the environment because they're not despoiling the oceans the way so many fish farms do. They're entirely on land. They have had some problems. Um, they had a massive fish kill now, I guess, about a year ago where they lost 250,000 fish like that. And then their pilot project, their uh, demonstration plant in Denmark, burned down. So this has not been, you know, without any any glitches. Um, In general, I would say that fish farming, and particularly if you can do it all on land, um, that has the potential to solve a lot of problems, not only with the inefficiency um, of you know, wild, wild catches. But the fact that the oceans and lakes are running out of fish, um, there's no way we're going to get more fish from the ocean than we're getting now. You know, at best we can sustain it. But there really is a possibility to produce a lot more protein in these fish farms, particularly if they're not the sort of near shore mess up the ocean fish farms. And you can do it organically. You can do it without antibiotics. You can do it without pesticides. You can do it without microplastics. So there are all kinds of good things. That said, this is a new tech and it's hard to do. You know, I just hope they get better at it.
2: And they will. And I think that that's a really important part of the answer to part of Marion's question, which is wild fisheries versus farm fisheries. And from a climate perspective, it just, it totally depends on what fish you're talking about. For wild caught fish, the biggest contributor to climate is the diesel that you burn on the boat. In aquaculture, the biggest contributor to climate is the feed. And so we'll probably get better at feed and, you know, we'll probably get better at at fishing too. But I think there's a lot of room for improvement. And if you're trying to make the decision, it totally depends on what fish farm and what wild fish you're talking about. And when I choose fish, I actually look at criteria... That are different. I don't look at the climate impact because that's not the big thing that distinguishes among them. I care very much about the wild fisheries, and if I buy wild caught fish, I try and look for the Marine Stewardship Council label or I check the Monterey Bay Aquarium seafood list. Um, to make sure that I'm buying from a well-managed fishery. I'll add that most of the fish I eat, I actually catch myself, and I have not done the math on the diesel that we have burned on our boat to catch that fish because I'm too scared of doing it. But the other part of Marion's question was canned fish. And canned, in in some ways, is always a better choice than fresh in one way, and that is that the less perishable the product is, the less food waste you're likely to get. So fish goes bad really quickly. And, in fact, I I will tell you one of my absolute supermarket pet peeves because most fish that gets caught gets flash frozen on the boat and that's a very very good way to do it it preserves the quality of the fish and then it gets shipped to the supermarket but consumers don't like frozen fish and so the supermarkets actually thaw out the fish thereby making it perishable just to be able to put it in the case so people don't look at frozen fish and that's when the food waste potential starts and it I I hate that. So any grocers who are listening, stop doing that. (laughs) But the specifics on canned fish, and it's like the wild fish. It depends on what fish it is. Tuna, a couple people have, have analyzed this, and it's in the same sort of greenhouse gas range as chicken. Sardines are way better than tuna. And canned salmon has been studied less. But one thing that people don't realize about canned salmon a lot of the time is that it is almost all wild caught. Most of it comes from Alaska. And it's the lesser known salmons. It's the pink salmon. It's the uh, the coho salmon. It's the sockeye salmon. It's not the Atlantic salmon or the king salmon that we're used to eating as fillets. So
1: we got fish farms, very promising. Canned fish. It depends on the fish, but it's less likely to go bad unless, like me, you think canned fish is bad to begin with.
2: Do you hate all canned fish? Oh, God. Oh, he's making a face. You can't see it. He just made a terrible... All right, if you had to choose canned fish or insects... <laughs> I try, I'll eat the bugs. <laughs> you really hate canned fish. All right, let's do the next
1: one.
0: <laughs> let's do the next one. Hi, my name is Cole. And uh, question about food and climate change. Um, from what I've seen... Most of the predictions about um, food solutions to climate change, whether it be eating plant-based or stopping food waste, most of the emissions that would be saved comes from land use change and not having the emissions that would be associated with land use change. If we have less beef or waste less food, then we will use less land, so it goes. However, to me, that seems like a bit like a non-sequitur in that we could waste less food and eat less beef and still have the land use change um, that perhaps goes to other things in the food system. I just don't know if if those two things exactly equal less land use change. Theoretically, they do, but is that really the case in practice, and what efforts are there on... um, really stopping land use change or, you know, what else is going on besides these sort of theoretical things? How can we address land use change more head on is maybe a way of saying that. So um, hope that makes sense and look forward to the show. Bye-bye.
1: Cole, that's a great question. This is, of course, my obsession. How do we feed the world without frying the world? How do we make more food with less land so that we don't have to have all this land use change and deforestation? Um, And I can understand why it feels like, oh, gosh, how does my beef intake or my food waste, you know, are we sure it really leads directly to land use change, especially in the United States, where, of course, we deforested the middle of our country back in the 19th century when you know all our farmers went west in covered wagons so you you don't really see that direct impact of gosh our meat is directly taking down trees um but that said when you eat meat when you waste food, you're increasing demand for land, and that increases land use change. The reason we have so much deforestation is because we need so much land for for agriculture. But the, the rest
2: of Cole's point is totally legit because, and this is one of the things that I think comes up, maybe not frequently enough in the conversation about, okay, land sharing or land sparing, because the idea that we want to grow as much food as we can on the land that we already use for food and we want to leave the rest of the land either wild or that can be rewilded, um, there's no guarantees that that's what happens to that land. You know, we don't know all of the 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 potential uses that that land could be going for or who the landlord is or what they're looking to do. And the thing about grazing is that it actually, it does make use of land that is not so great for other things. So what is that landowner going to do if grazing doesn't happen? It's a totally legit concern and it should definitely be part of the conversation.
1: Yeah, but but again, there's so much agriculture we're going to need in the world, right? Right now, it's like, you know, Asia plus the Americas is used for agriculture. And if we, you know, if we were able to do... More food with less land, we wouldn't need so much of it. It's very similar to urban sprawl, where if you can put more people right next to each other, they're not going to spread out. But the people do have to live somewhere. We have to make the food somewhere. And if we aren't going to be able to make it with very high yields in a smaller area, we're going to need more area.
2: And, you know, land use is one of those things that are, it's just, it's, it's really hard to sort of wrap your mind around all of the issues that come into play. And I actually think we have a second question about land use.
0: Hi there, this is Brighton Stahl from the Kansas City area. And as someone who grew up in northeastern Kansas, I can tell you that uh, there's a lot of land out here that isn't suitable for uh, for cropland, but it is suitable for pasture land. So I'm curious how that factors into the land use uh, issues for beef. Now, obviously, that doesn't, doesn't uh, help the methane burping at all, but I'm curious how it affects the land use issues. Is it actually possible that the most efficient use of land is that the land that can hold crops should hold crops, and the land that can't hold crops should be used for grazing? Uh, I'm curious. Thanks.
1: Yes, Brighton, this is another great question, and yeah, it's a really similar question. And it's true. Not all grazing land can be crops. Um, but all grazing land can be nature. And this gets at the earlier question as well. There is always a carbon opportunity cost to using land. Farmland, if you grow crops on it, if you run cattle on it, um, that land, that has a cost. You know, you could otherwise use that land just to store carbon, to grow nature. Um, and then Use somewhere else to to grow your crops and and run your cows. Um, now I should point out sometimes that ar- opportunity cost will be worth it. Now, we're not saying that the opportunity cost is always worse, that land should always go back to nature. No, we want to use good farmland to grow food. We want to use good natural land to remain nature. Uh, But there is always a cost. And I think a lot of the studies, a lot of the life cycle analyses, they try to wave away the cost uh, because, you know, there's not a lot of deforestation in the United States because we've already drained so many of our wetlands. But if you're using land that could be nature,
2: that's that's a cost. But we also, I think we try really hard to acknowledge the pluses of those kinds of systems. And using marginal land that can't grow crops to raise high-quality protein in the form of ruminant animals— has all kinds of pluses. And I think if there's going to be beef in our food system, and I think there's going to be, and I'm not opposed to that, I actually think that that's a good way to do it. And if we find ways to try and mitigate enteric methane and we reduce global demand so that we don't have increasing demand driving deforestation, there is room in our food system for this kind of thing.
1: I think in general, we want to say that the marginal farmland maybe doesn't need to be farmland. And the more marginal carbon storage natural land, if we're going to expand farmland, that's the place to look. You know, 40% of grazing land on the planet was originally forest. And so there's clearly a major carbon opportunity cost. So we want to run cows whenever we can on land that could never be forest, but there's always going to be a trade-off.
2: And Brighton, this is one of the most contentious and difficult issues in the whole food climate space, so this will not be the last word. Um, but it'll be the last word for now. So uh, let's go on to the next question.
3: Hi, my name is Lauren Pescelle, and I have a podcast newsletter called Podcast Newsletter. And I just listened to the first two episodes of Carnivores, and I absolutely loved it. I'm going to be writing about it, but anyway, my question is um, about oysters. I have been a vegetarian for 30 years, and when I was eight, it was because I didn't want to harm animals, and, um, you know, I wasn't thinking about my cholesterol or the world, but now I see that, you know, eating plant-based is good for those two things, but I've heard vegans say that they eat oysters because oysters don't have a central nervous system. So you're not really murdering them. And that farming them is fine for the planet and maybe even good for the planet. Am I spreading fake news? And should I try an oyster? I think I would like them.
1: Lauren, you wrote some lovely things about our show. We are so grateful. Uh, when it comes to oysters, I think you're looking for Tamar.
2: So so Mike handles. Policy and energy, and I handle nutrition and oysters. That's the division (laughs) of labor around here. And Lauren, I am so here for you because I get these questions a lot. So let's take them one at a time. First is eating oysters if you're vegan. And a lot of vegans say, you know, they don't want to eat anything with a face. And of course, an oyster doesn't have a face. So under that definition, they qualify. They are, of course, an animal. But they don't have a central nervous system. Um, I don't think there's any research that I've seen about feeling pain. Um, And I know vegans who will eat oysters, in part because that it's sort of a, a, a low life form, but also because of your second question, which is that unlike almost everything we grow, oysters can be a positive out in the ecosystem. In fact, here on Cape Cod, where we have nutrient loading problems in our estuaries, uh, oyster farming is a codified part of the solution because oysters take algae and eat, eat it and they— uh, uh, take nutrients out of the water by doing that. They clear the water. And, you know, there's there's somebody who does a really interesting uh, demonstration where there's uh, two big tanks, all algae-filled water, and they put oysters in one of them and not in the other. And then they give a talk that lasts a couple hours. And by the end of the couple of hours, the tank with the oysters is completely clear. And one adult oyster can filter like 50 gallons of water, in a day, and so that can make a huge difference to water quality. And without that algae, you don't have the kind of fish kills that you see where where uh, bodies of water get overloaded with that. So oysters are awesome, and and yes, you should definitely try one. and Uh, If you were on Cape Cod, I I would come out and pick one out for you, because you want to make sure it's a high-quality oyster, because let's face it, there are oysters out there that I'm not going to eat, and... I think that people are a little bit unclear about, you know, what makes a high quality oyster. So I want you to look for a creamy, solid looking body, not translucent. That's what we call a jelly belly. So so a creamy, solid looking body and start with a small one and make sure that it comes from a cold water uh, area like Cape Cod, for example, and... Don't put anything on it, and whatever you do, no cocktail sauce. So just eat the oyster, make sure you chew it and you taste it, and please report back and tell me how you did.
1: Do people really eat oysters because it doesn't have a face? Stop it, (laughs) Grunewald. (laughs) <laughs>
2: yes, they do. <laughs> we salute vegans, but that's a crazy reason. <laughs> no, it's a perfectly decent reason because not having a face is a, is an indication of also not having a central nervous system. <laughs> so, all right, enough on oysters. What's what's coming up next?
3: Hi, my name is Bryn, and I have a question about regenerative agriculture. It's actually as promising as people seem to believe it is because it kind of seems to me that it's sort of becoming like the organic label where it means something entirely different in reality than what people think it means. And some people seem to think it has a lot of promise, but I'm not so sure. Thank you.
2: Bryn, thanks so much for your question, even though it does involve my least favorite word in all of food and climate, and that's regenerative. Because I think in some very important ways, it's actually very different from organic. Regardless of what you think about organic, it is well codified. There are standards that food has to meet in order to be called organic. The USDA regulates those standards and that label. So, when something is called organic and it has that USDA sticker on it, it does mean something. It means that it has been grown only with a suite of approved pesticides, um, and there are a whole lot of other standards about both growing crops and raising animals. Um, And so, but regenerative doesn't have any kind of codified meaning like that. And if you're on Twitter, people tend to use it, you know, to describe any agriculture that they're in favor of. And, you know, if I had to try and nail it down, I would say that regenerative is really focused on sequestering carbon in soil and trying to build back soil while continuing to grow food. Um, But there's a lot of wiggle room there, and people... Like I said, tend to use it in to describe anything that seems like it's ecologically friendly. And I have to tell you, I'm old enough to remember when we used to call that agroecological, <laughs> but that term has fallen by the wayside to be replaced by uh, by regenerative
1: or sustainable. Right? They're that all we're now carbon farming. That's uh, another one. Look, I think mm-hmm. there's a sense that organic and regenerative. It's it's all trying to be lighter on. On the land, sort of farming more in harmony with nature, um, but I think Tamar and I have both expressed some concerns, and this is really maybe a not just one episode but multiple episodes that we need to do about regenerative agriculture. But our concern is, as Tamar mentioned, you know, there's there's this intense focus that this is going to solve our carbon problem by just storing a lot more carbon in soils. And the evidence for that is really thin right now. Um, and uh, and we're really concerned that when you do things like, you know, not tilling the soil, uh, you're going to have more weeds and smaller yields. And we are obsessed with yields because we need to grow more food on less land. you know, there's a lot of hype about regenerative agriculture, that it can kind of, you know, solve everything, that it can grow more food on less land with better soil health and fix the interest rates to a a proper level and maybe cure tooth decay. Um, And I really hope that all of this turns out to be true. But right now, there's an awful lot of energy and money going into regenerative solutions. And I think what we can certainly say is
2: that the the jury is still out that we don't know. And, uh, and some of them are going to pan out, though. And so, you know, I think what happens, and we see this happen over and over again, that, you know, there's a new development, and people get excited about it, including us. Um, And then eh, it doesn't work out so well. When you put it in production, there are too many variables. Hard
1: to scale. But
2: Hard to scale. But some of them are going to work out. We are, we're not, poo-pooing these things. Um, We're just being a little bit cautious about enthusiasm before we have, like, really robust testing, because the early testing isn't as promising as we And we
1: do promise that we will do not just one episode about regenerative ag and one about regenerative grazing. We are going to be talking about this a lot as we get deeper into this stuff. So, All right.
2: Regenerative to be continued. I think we have one more question.
3: Hi, this is Jess. I'm calling from St. Catharines, Ontario. And as a quasi-vegan who can't quite give up cheese, the majority of my protein comes from soy, tofu, tempeh, and the like. And so my question is about soy. Is growing soy in a monoculture way that we do really that much better for the environment
1: than chicken or fish. Thanks. Jess, congratulations on being a quasi-vegan. You are doing your part. Um, You know, don't let the purest vegans give you a hard time. You're trying. And you can totally
2: eat oysters.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Better is better than worse. And you asked particularly about soy. Um, whether it's really better for the environment than chicken or fish, since it is grown and often in these monocultures. They're, they have GMOs. Um, they use a lot of fertilizer. So the answer is yes, it is still better. You know, eating soy is way better, particularly for the climate, than eating chickens that eat soy, for example, and, of course, far better than than cows that eat soy and other things. But, you know, eliminating the middleman is really good. It's really efficient. Um, You hear a lot that soy is a driver of deforestation, um, particularly in Brazil. And even though most of the immediate deforestation is caused by cattle, um, it is true that sometimes there is, you know, forests come down and they're replaced by, by soybean fields. But the fact is, if it wasn't soy, uh, they would be replacing it with less eff- efficient crops that would require more acres to provide the same amount of pre- protein and
2: nutrition. And that is totally key here, because the thing about soy is that it is the most efficient way to grow plant protein. Um and corn and soy have gotten such a bad rap because of the way that we grow them in the United States in a monoculture or in in uh, usually in rotation, um, and because we put them in cars and pigs and Twinkies. We don't eat tortillas and edamame. And But there's a reason that soy and corn came to dominate the landscape, and it's not because of subsidies. It's because corn is the most efficient cereal grass, and soy is the most efficient legume. Ding, 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 yet, ding, ding, ding. Yeah, right, exactly.
1: <laughs> and lo- we should mention that palm oil, which
2: everybody hates, is the most efficient vegetable oil. It is absolutely, palm oil will actually blow you away. And we'll do an episode on palm oil, I promise. But in the meantime, and as preparation for that episode on palm oil, there's a metric here that I have been trying to get people to care about. And I will say it's been an uphill battle. Not with me tomorrow. I, I know, I know. You're such a geek. You like my geeky metrics. And that is calories per acre. Now, you know, all the plants we grow have one thing in common, they generate calories. And obviously it's not the only thing they generate, there's uh, the protein and nutrients, those matter too. But calories per acre is this way that we can compare any crop to any other crop and soy compared to other crops that grow protein is like 3 times better. So soy here in the United States, we can grow about 6 million calories per acre. And that's less than half of what corn can do because protein has a lot of plant overhead. So any protein rich plant is going to generate fewer calories per acre than a, a crop that has less protein. But you compare soy at 6 million calories per acre, to other kinds of legumes, dry beans, chickpeas, my beloved lentils, um, are really only usually in the two million range. And so soy is a super duper way to get your protein as a quasi-vegan. Now, there are lots of things we should be doing about how we grow it, but as far as the crop itself go for it. And this
1: is what's so great about veganism, um, which again, Tamar and I don't partake, but uh, but again, what's great about eating plants is you are just taking energy from the sun is going directly into energy for your body. It's a pretty efficient way of, of using the sun.
2: Keep on keeping
1: on with your tofu. So is that a wrap? Is that our last question? Well, actually, Tamar, I've got one more question for you. I don't know. Is that fair? Are you allowed to (laughs) ask questions? Well, you know, I like to look at the news, and you're the nutritional expert. So I wanted to hear what you thought about Dr. Oz. Oh, Doctor Oz! So his campaign has come out against John Fetterman. Um, They're running. They're both running. Oz is the Republican. Fetterman is the Democrat. They're both running for Senate in Pennsylvania, Um, and uh, they've been having. They actually been fighting a lot about food ever since uh, Doctor Oz did that kind of funny. you know, thing with the crudities, right? The, Where,
2: the, the notorious
1: crudity tapes, exactly. <laughs> um, and I guess uh, Dr. Oz, he he isn't so happy about all the flack he's been taking about his uh, his veggie plate um, video. And he shot back, or his campaign shot back. They said that here's here's the I'm going to read the quote if John Fetterman had ever eaten a vegetable in his life, then maybe he wouldn't have had a major stroke. Now, I think maybe in cheesesteak country, uh, that's not awesome politics to be trashing people who don't eat enough vegetables, um, probably in any country uh, that, that might not go, so, go over so well in this carnivorous country of ours. But I wanna know if it's true. If Fetterman had eaten more vegetables, could he have reduced his chances of having a stroke?
2: All right, Mike, if we're going to start fact-checking Dr. Oz, we're going to be here for a very long time, and I would start with his diet pills or his colloidal silver or his conversion therapy. I, I mean, <laughs> there's there's a lot of ripe fruit there for fact checking. He, he's like Pirelli's
1: <laughs> miracle elixir,
2: right? <laughs> that's right. That's exactly right. So he's got a lot of chutzpah telling John Fetterman he should be eating his vegetables. And okay, so here's the thing about eating vegetables, and and it's actually just a fundamental thing about nutrition research. And, you know, I'm sure we'll be talking about this more in future episodes. It's really hard to study the connection between diet and health outcomes. And we just don't have good tools to do it. We can look at, you know, the big cohorts of people where researchers track them for decades and see what happens to them um, and try and pin you know, the diet to the health outcome. And, you know, that is an enterprise that's fraught with peril. Or you can do a controlled trial that's usually short term and usually looks at surrogate endpoints because you can't run the test for long enough for people to actually have strokes. Uh, Eating more vegetables is never going to be bad, but if you're looking for hard evidence that eating more vegetables is going to prevent stroke, I think that y- you're going to have a hard time finding that.
1: Maybe not campaigning for the Senate would be a better way to avoid the stress that, that leads to stroke. I don't know.
2: <laughs> probably. Probably. But I think we're out of time here, which is which is too bad, because I would love to do a fact check on the diet pills. Climavores is a production of PostScript Media. And we want to know what you're thinking. The mailbag episodes are the most fun, so bring us some fodder for the next one. Give us a call. Leave us a message, 508-377-3449. And we'll also be including email questions in upcoming mailbag episodes. Climavores at postscriptaudio.com. The show is hosted by me, Tamar Haspel. And me, Michael Grunwald. Executive producers are Scott Clavenna and Stephen Lacey. Senior editor is Anne Bailey. Cecily Mesa-Martinez is the managing producer, and Dalvin Abouage is the associate producer. Engineering by Sean Marquand and Greg Villefranc. PostScript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures.
1: Prelude is a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. So if you like us, please spread the word. You can give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Please don't mention how often your hosts say, you know, or kinda. But you can rate us on Spotify too. And if you have a climate-conscious foodie in your life, please send them a link. And we'll be back again next week with
2: more questions and more answers.